Chapter 10 of The Story of a Whim by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter 10 Victoria Has a Finger in the Pie. During the singing of the next hymn, the organist came within range of the watcher's eye, and she noted with surprise the young man, Mr. Mortimer, to whom she'd been introduced in the hotel parlor a few evenings before. He was a cousin of those Mortimers from Boston who roomed next to Ruth. He would be at the hotel again. He would be another link in the evidence, for Victoria had set out to sift the character of Christy Bailey through and through. She was chained to the spot by her interest during the chalkboard lesson, which by shifting her position a trifle she could see as well as hear. But during the singing of the closing hymn she left in a panic, and when the dusky crowd flowed out into the road, she was well on her way toward home, and no one save the yellow-footed chickens that clucked around her feet were the wiser. Victoria didn't immediately make known to Ruth the afternoon's events. She had other evidence to gather before she presented it before the court. She wanted to be sure of Christy before she put her finger in the pie at all. Therefore, she was on the lookout for young Mr. Mortimer, she hoped he'd visit his aunt Sunday evening, but if he did, he wasn't in evidence. All day Monday she haunted the porches and entrances, but he didn't come until Tuesday evening. Victoria, in the meanwhile, made herself agreeable to Mrs. Mortimer, and it didn't take her long to monopolize the young man when he finally came. Indeed, he was attracted to her from the first. They were soon seated comfortably in two large porch chairs, watching the moon rise out of the little lake and frame itself in wreaths of long gray moss, which reached out lace-like fingers and seemed to try to snare it. But always it slipped through until it sailed high above, serene. Such a great moon, and so different from a northern moon. Victoria did justice to the scene with a fine supply of adjectives, and then addressed herself to her self-appointed task. Mr. Mortimer, I wonder if you know a man down here by the name of Bailey, Christy Bailey. Tell me about him, please. Who is he, and how did he come by such a strange name? Is it short for Christopher? She settled her fluffy dress around her in the moonlight and fastened her eyes on Mortimer with interest. He felt he had a pleasant task before him to speak of his friend to this charming girl. Certainly, I know Chris well. He's one of the best fellows in the world. Yes, his name is an odd one, a family name, I believe. His mother's family name, I think he told me once. No, no Christopher about it, just plain Christy. But how in the world do you happen to know anything about him? He told me once he hadn't a friend left in the North. Victoria was prepared for this. Oh, I heard someone talking about a Sunday school he had started, and I'm interested in Sunday schools myself. Did he come down here as a sort of missionary, do you know? She asked the question innocently enough, and Mortimer waxed earnest in his story. No, indeed, no missionary about Christy. Why, Miss Landis, a year ago Christy was one of the toughest fellows in Florida. He could play a fine hand at cards and drink as much whiskey as the next one, and there wasn't one of us with a readier tongue when it was loosened up with plenty of drinks. I hope you're not one of that kind said Victoria sincerely, looking at the fine restless eyes and handsome profile outlined in the moonlight. A shade of sadness crossed his face. 
No one had spoken to him like that in a long time. He turned and looked into her eyes. It's kind of you to care, Miss Landis. Perhaps if I'd met someone like you a few years ago, I'd have been a better fellow. Then he sighed and continued. A strange change came over Christie about a year ago. Someone sent him an organ and some things for his room, supposing he was a girl, from his name, I believe. They got hold of his name at the freight station where his goods were shipped. They must have been uncommon people to send so much to a stranger. There was a fine picture, too, which he keeps on his wall, some religious work of a great artist. He treasures it above his orange grove, I believe. Well, those things made the most marvelous change in that man. You wouldn't have known him. Some of us fellows went to see him soon after it happened. We thought it would be a joke to carry out the suggestion that came with the organ that Christie start a Sunday school. So we invited neighbors from all around, went up there Sunday, and fixed seats all over his cabin. He was as mad as could be, but he couldn't help himself. So instead of knocking us all out and sending the audience home, he just pitched in and had a Sunday school. He wouldn't allow any laughing either. We fellows had taken lunch and a case of bottles over to make the day a success. When Armstrong, he's the second son of an earl, came in with a case of liquor, Chris rose up mightily. Perhaps you don't know Christie has red hair. Well, he has a temper just like it, and he suddenly rose up and fairly blazed at us, eyes and hair and face. He looked like a strong, avenging angel. I declare, he was magnificent. We never knew he had it in him. Well, from that day forward, he took hold of that Sunday school, and he changed all his ways. He didn't go to any more gatherings of the clan, as we called them. We were so proud of him, we wouldn't have let him if he'd tried. Some of the fellows come to the Sunday school and help every Sunday. Sing, you know, and play. We all stand by him. He's good as gold. Not many could live alone in a Florida orange grove from one year's end to another and keep themselves from evil the way Christy Bailey has. Wouldn't you like to see the Sunday school sometime? I'll get Chris to let me bring you if you say so. Victoria smilingly said she would enjoy it. Then, her interest in Christy Bailey satisfied, she turned her attention to the young man before her. You didn't answer my question a while ago about yourself. There was a pleading in Victoria's voice, and the young man before her was visibly embarrassed. The tones grew more earnest. The moon looked down upon the two sitting there quietly. The voices of the night surrounded them, but they didn't hear. Victoria had found a mission of her own while trying to straighten out another's. But the next morning early, Victoria laid out her campaign. She took Ruth out for a walk, and on the way she told her what she intended to do. And you propose to go to Christy Bailey's house this morning, Victoria? without telling Hazel anything of it. Indeed, Vic, I'm not going to do any such thing. What would Mrs. Winship say? Mrs. Winship will say nothing about it, for she will never know anything about it. Besides, I don't care what she says so long as we straighten things out for Hazel. Don't you see that Hazel must understand that she hasn't failed after all, that the young man was sincere and really meant to be a Christian? and that the only thing he failed in was not in having courage to speak out and tell her she'd made a mistake. He didn't intend any harm, and after it went on for a while, of course, it was harder to tell. Now, Ruth, there's no use in your saying you won't go, for I've got to have a chaperone, you know. 
I couldn't go alone, and I shall go with or without you, so you may as well come. Reluctantly Ruth went, half fearful of the result of this daring girl's plan, and only half understanding what she meant to do. Christy came to the door when they knocked. He looked eagerly beyond them into the sunshine, hunting for another face, but none appeared. Victoria's eyes were dancing. She isn't here, she said mockingly, rightly interpreting his searching gaze. So you better ask us in, or you won't find out what we came for. It's very warm out here in the sun. Christy smiled a sad smile and asked them in. He couldn't guess what they'd come for, and waited solemnly for them to speak. Now, sir, said Victoria with decision, I want you to understand that you've been the cause of a great deal of suffering and disappointment. Christy took on at once a look of haggard misery as he listened anxiously, not taking his eyes from the speaker's face. Victoria was enjoying her task immensely. The young man looked more handsome wearing that abject expression. It would do him no harm to suffer a little longer. Anyway, he deserved it, she thought. You were aware, I think, from a letter Miss Summers wrote you, that Miss Winship was very ill before she came down here, that she almost died. Here Ruth nodded her head severely. She felt like meeting out judgment to this false-hearted young man. Perhaps you don't know that the long walk she took from your house last week, after the startling revelation she received here, was enough to kill her in her weak condition. Christie's white, anxious face gave Victoria a flitting twinge of conscience. Possibly the young man had suffered enough already without her adding anything to it, but she went on with her prepared program. You also probably don't know that the other day when she was riding horseback, she controlled herself until she passed you, and then was utterly overcome by the humiliation of seeing you, and slipped from her horse onto the road, unconscious. Since that time she has been hovering between life and death. Victoria had carefully weighed that sentence and decided that, while it might be a trifle overdrawn, the circumstances nevertheless justified the statement. For truly they had feared for Hazel's life several times during the last two or three days. But a groan escaped the young man's white lips, and Victoria, springing to her feet, realized that his punishment had been enough. She walked toward him involuntarily, with pity on her face. Don't look like that, she said. I think she'll get well, but I also think, since you're to blame for a good deal of the trouble, it's time you offered to do something. What could I do? said Christie in hoarse eagerness. Well, I think if you were to explain to her how it all happened, it might change the situation somewhat. She has forbidden me to say a word answered Christie in clear misery. Oh, she has, has she? said Victoria, surveying him with dissatisfaction. Well, you ought to have done it anyway. You should have insisted. That's a man's part. She has to know the truth somehow, and get some of the tragedy taken out of this. Or she'll suffer for it, that's all. And there's no one to explain but you. You see, it isn't the pleasantest thing to find one has written all sort of confidences to a strange young man. Hazel is blaming herself, as any common flirt might do, if she had a conscience. But that, of course, though extremely humiliating to her pride, isn't the worst. She feels terrible about your deceiving her and pretending you are a Christian, and she was all the time praying her life out for you, while you were having a joke out of it. It hurt her self-respect a good deal, but it has hurt her religion more. 
Christy raised his head in protest, but Victoria went on. Wait a minute, please. I want to tell you I believe she's mistaken. I don't believe you were playing a part in telling her you'd become a Christian, were you? Or that you were making fun of her enthusiasm and trying to see how far she would go just for fun? I've never written anything in joke to Miss Winship. I honor and respect her beyond anyone else on earth. I have never deceived her in anything, except that I didn't tell her who I was. I thought there was no harm in it when I did it, but I now see it was a terrible mistake, and I feel that I owe my salvation to Miss Winship. She introduced me to Jesus Christ. I'm trying to make him my guide. The young man raised his head and turned his eyes with acknowledgment toward the pictured Christ as he declared his faith. Victoria and Ruth were awed into admiration. I almost expected to see a halo spring up behind his copper hair, said Victoria to Ruth on the way home. Victoria had arranged to send him word when he could see Hazel, and the two girls went away, leaving Christy in a state of conflicting emotions. He could do nothing. He sat and thought and thought, going over all his acquaintance with Hazel, singling out what he told her of his own feelings toward Christ. And she thought he did it all in joke. He began to see how hideous his action was in her eyes. Knowing her pure, lovely soul as he did through her letters, he felt keenly for her. How could he blame her for her condemning him? And that day he found in the breast pocket of his old working coat the photograph of Hazel so prized and so sadly missed since the day of her visit. He had supposed Victoria took it, but now he recalled her words about it as she ran after Hazel. Smiling into the sweet girlish face, he wondered whether she would ever forgive him. The next day a note came from Victoria, saying he might call at seven o'clock on Saturday evening, and Hazel could likely see him a few minutes. A postscript to the writer's original style added, And I hope you'll have sense enough to know what to say. If you don't, I'm sure I can't do anything more for you. And Christy echoed the cry too deeply to be able to smile over it. Victoria had laid her plans carefully. She arranged to spend more time with Hazel than she had, pleading a headache as an excuse from going out for a ride in the hot sun and sending Mrs. Winship in her place more than once. She found that Hazel had no intention of opening her heart to her, so she determined to make a move herself. Hazel had been very quiet for a long time. Victoria thought she was asleep until at last she noticed a little quiver of her lip and the tiniest glisten of a tear rolling down the thin white cheek. As though she didn't see, she got up and moved around the room a moment, and then in a cheery tone began to tell her story. Hazel, dear, I'm going to tell you where I went last Sunday. It was so interesting. I wandered off alone out into the country, and eventually heard some singing in a little log cabin by the road. I slipped into the yard behind some crepe myrtle bushes all in lovely bloom, where I was hidden. Through a crack between the logs, I could see three rows of black children and some older people, too. And at the organ, there was a nice organ standing against the wall, sat Mr. Mortimer, that young man we met in the parlor the other evening, Mrs. Boston Mortimer's nephew, you know. Some other young men were there, too, and they were all singing. After the singing, there was a prayer. One of the young men prayed. It was all about being forgiven for mistakes and sins and not being worth Christ's saving. It was a beautiful prayer. 
and Hazel, it was Christy Bailey who prayed. End of chapter 10